Hello and welcome to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and joining me each week to give insights and perspectives is the archivist from Book of Mormon Central, Jared Riddick. Hello, Jared. How are you doing this week? Not too bad, Nick. Excellent. So this week we are on to chapter five of Life of Nephi, and uh, there's some interesting things that George Cucanon, the author, brings out as we are going through this story of the of Nephi, Lehi, and their family and leaving Jerusalem. But one of the things that chapter five talks about is the significance of the tribalism of the Israelites in Jerusalem at this time. What would it mean that if Laban was of the same tribe as Lehi? They're related at some degree, probably distant cousins. They certainly probably would have known of each other, if not through relation, then through uh, reputation either through Laban's or through Lehi's, is all of a sudden preaching in the streets. It would be safe to assume, and George Q. Cannon assumes, that there is a familiarity between at least Laban and the Lehi family. Mm -hmm. So how does this play into perhaps Laman and Lemuel's reluctance to do what they're doing? Laman and Lemuel know Laban's reputation. I mean, he can command 50, he can even slay 50. Uh, Laban is not a gentle man. Uh, He's a harsh man. He's a military man, probably a political leader, potentially a religious leader, leader as well. He's done some stuff, and they know about it. And this, is, this isn't this is approaching a cousin to ask permission to take the plates. This is approaching, like, the governor right. or someone else. This is approaching someone they're clearly very nervous about and someone that's probably above their station socially. And it, it's brought up in this that perhaps if they are of the same house, that perhaps that might be some of what they hoped was their in at the same time, right? That they yeah. have some, not equal claim, but at least some opportunity to have access to the records. Yeah, it's like, let, let us borrow this for a little while. Yeah. That's well, how Living Scriptures betrays it. Like, right. Oh, we'll just borrow the plates. <laughs> the other part that comes out in this is the interaction of Nephi and his brothers with Zoram, who is a servant of Laban. Yeah, and I like that Canton really takes the time here to try and get to know Zoram a bit better. Sometimes we gloss over Zoram's account. I don't think we should. He really takes account, like, what is Zoram's potential background? And there's some interesting ideas here. There's also an interesting paper published recently in Interpreter by uh, Colin Russell called Meeting Zoram, whose ideas I'll I'll probably bring up now and then as we discuss this. But Zoram's a very interesting fella. Yeah, part of what gets brought out is this idea that he could have been a bondsman or someone that was bonded to Laban, almost like a servant. Yep. Now, there was a lot of discussion about Israelite law, the law of Moses, I should say, with respect to how someone would be a servant— for no more than six years, and in the seventh year, they would be, be released from that. Yeah. yeah. Part of why this is significant is because Nephi makes this invitation that if you come with us, you'll be free. And, and Zoram, Cannon, obviously, he finds it pretty appealing. Yeah, he goes. Cannon assumes that the reason that he chooses this is because he is not free. Mm-hmm. So what are some other options there? What are some other thoughts on Zoram's situation as to why he may have responded the way he did to Nephi? Well, first, we always have to keep in mind that there's a guy in his boss's armor covered in blood holding him in position, and he's naturally going to be yeah. a bit more uh, submissive than he might have otherwise been. But one of the things we don't keep in mind as often that Russell kind of touches on in his paper is that Zorm did not know who they were. He probably wouldn't have naturally thought that they were Jews. People sneaking into the city that have killed a political military leader and now are trying to sneak out with treasure, with records, he might have thought they were foreign nationalists. He might have thought they were Babylonians. He might have thought they were somebody else. And they're saying, hey, we won't kill you, which is a pretty good deal. Just come with us, yeah. and you'll still be free. We won't enslave you like we enslaved the countless others that we took from Jerusalem, from your city before. Yeah. 
at this time, though, we also have to remember back to, I think it was the first chapter where we got this history of a constantly changing leadership. Yeah, this is a political turmoil that's going on here. Oh, yeah. So it's almost like loyalty is kind of hard to come by because you don't know who to be loyal to. Mm-hmm. It's constantly changing. And the oath meant something. It did. And regardless of who it's coming from, that oath means something. And Zoram and Nephi, once that oath is made, their worries are ceased. And they're promising freedom, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like something that most foreign, you know, imperial powers would, would extend to Naturally a lowly do. servant. Yeah. So there's something to that. There's also some question as to Zoram's origin. Mm-hmm. Um, Elder Orson Pratt believed Zoram to be an Israelite, likely of Laban's own tribe. But what do we have as some other suggestions about his lineage, his origins? Uh, Nibley speculated that he was maybe Phoenician or Canaanite. I don't know as much with that, just because intermarriage is forbidden. And then clearly a few chapters later, as we'll talk about, he marries one of Ishmael's, Ishmael's daughters. daughters. And somebody might say, well, they're in the wilderness. They might not do that. But they went back, they went back to Jerusalem to have the trouble to get somebody of the house of Israel to be able to marry. They're not going to just throw the rule out the window then. Right. So I think Zoram is probably an Israelite, likely of the house of Joseph uh, at this point in time. So yeah, that's just my personal speculation. Well, one of the things that Canon also brings out is that with Zoram kind of out of the picture, there's nobody really there as a witness or any kind of evidence of who killed Laban. And yeah. so it was very important for Nephi to get Zoram out at that point. And they probably actually pinned the murder on Zoram. I mean, frankly, that would make sense. Like, hey, his servant disappeared. And the treasury, and the guy that's responsible for the treasury, he's gone, and so is some of the treasure. Could be. Probably probably him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's important because that's the reason they're able to go back to Jerusalem to meet Ishmael and his family. A few chapters later, they're able to do that because no one's blaming them for the death of Laban. Right. All right. Well, that covers up some good introductory material on this chapter, so stay tuned for chapter five of Life of Nephi. The Life of Nephi, the Son of Lehi, Chapter 5 There was one expression used by Nephi, which would lead us to suppose that Zoram was a bondman. He was promised his freedom if he would go with them into the wilderness. This was evidently said to him as an inducement to comply with their wishes. There would be no special attraction in such a proposition to a man already free. But to a bondman, the promise of being made as free as they were would go a long way towards reconciling him to submit to their wishes. It may be asked then, was Zoram one of the heathens or a son of one of the strangers who sojourned in the midst of Israel? For these only were the children of Israel permitted by the law of Moses to make perpetual bondmen. We are aware that the law of Moses expressly commanded the children of Israel to keep no Hebrew servant whom they might buy because of his poverty for any longer period than six years. In the seventh year he should go free for nothing, and be furnished liberally by his master that had been out of all the property the Lord had given him. There was only one condition under the law of Moses upon which one of the children of Israel could keep his brother in service as a bondman, and that was by the free consent of the man himself. The law said that if in the seventh year the man who had been bought, and who was at that time entitled to his release, should plainly say he would not go away from his master because he loved him and his family was satisfied with him. Then the master should take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he should then be his servant forever. The Lord was strict upon this point, for he viewed all the children of Israel as his servants, 
and they were not to be bought and sold as bondsmen, nor to be ruled over with rigor by their brethren. If therefore Zoram was an Israelite, as we fully believe he was, and the law of Moses had been strictly observed in Jerusalem at that time, the offer made by Nephi to make him a free man would have had no particular inducement to him, for in any event he would have been free at the end of six years, or if he had surrendered himself for life to Laban as his servant and his ear had been bored with an awl, he had done so for love of Laban and his family and because he was pleased with the service. But as we shall show, the law of Moses was not observed on this point in Jerusalem at that time. Laban was just such a man as would violate that law. He was a greedy, rapacious, cruel man, ready to take any advantage to gain his ends, even to shedding blood. Laman, Nephi's brother, must have known him well, and he said, He can command fifty, yea, even he can slay fifty. If he would not hesitate to murder these four young men, whom it is but reasonable to conclude he must have known were his kindred, being of the same lineage himself, for their property, he would not scruple to enslave his poor brethren, or even to kill them on some pretext if it suited his purpose to do so. The glimpse which Nephi gives of the condition of affairs in that city is sufficient to show us how little human life was valued. Men were stoned and killed in other ways, were treated as though they had no rights which ought to be respected, because they warned the people to repent, and prophesied if they did not, they would be visited by terrible judgments. There can be little doubt from Laban's character that he was one of these vindictive persecutors. It is very likely that he was a man who prided himself on his zeal for religion, for it is plain he went into the society of the elders of his people. Yet he could get drunk, he could rob and try to murder and still justify himself for such conduct as persecutors of the righteous do in these days. There can scarcely be any doubt about Lehi and he being acquainted. There were of the same lineage residents of the same city, and Lehi knew that he had the records on the brass plates. Was not the repugnance of Laman and Lemuel to obey the command of the Lord through their father for them to return to Jerusalem and get those records from Laban, and their remark that it was a hard thing which their father required of them, due in part at least to the fact that they knew Laban and knew how he felt towards the family because of their father's predictions? And is it not probable that one reason for his treating Nephi and his brothers as he did and trying to kill them was that he knew them as the sons of Lehi? and was satisfied he could justify himself for anything he might do to them, even if he murdered them. His conduct towards them was not that of a novice in crimes against innocent people. But whether he had helped shed innocent blood or not, the Lord knew that he had only failed in killing Nephi and his brothers through the inability of his servants to catch them. And he deemed him unfit to live and commanded Nephi to kill him. If he had been accessory to murder, the law of the Lord through Moses was very plain as to what his fate would be. The Lord says, For blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Such a man as he would be a hard master, and it is scarcely improper to suppose that Zoram was the more content to accompany Nephi because of the promise held out to him of a release from servitude. The prophet Jeremiah who knew all about the condition of affairs at Jerusalem during these days, speaks thus, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, At the end of seven years, 
Let ye go every man his brother, an Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee. And when he hath served thee six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee. But your fathers hearkened not unto me, neither inclined their ear. And ye were now turned, and had done right in my sight, in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And he had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. But ye turned, and polluted my name, and caused every man his servant, and every man his handmaid, whom he had set at liberty, at their pleasure, to return, and brought them into subjection, to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. For breaking this covenant, Jeremiah, inspired of the Lord, pronounced upon the nation from the king down terrible curses, and they were all fulfilled. From Jeremiah's words, it is clear that Israelites were made bondmen by their brethren, and from Zoram's subsequent marriage and life, we think it safe to assume that he was not an alien, but an Israelite. Elder Orson Pratt thought that from his being worthy to hold the keys of the treasury and of the sacred brass plates, Zoram was probably of the same tribe as Laban. The determination of Nephi to take Zoram with them was clearly a matter of necessity. Nephi says they were desirous he should tarry with them that the Jews might not know concerning their flight into the wilderness, lest they should pursue and destroy them. When Zoram had made an oath to stay with them, their fears concerning him ceased. Two results were accomplished by having Zoram go with them. Their company was strengthened by the addition of one who proved himself a worthy man, and all clue to the cause of Laban's death and to the person who slew him was completely removed beyond reach of the Jews. The disappearance of Zoram of Laban's clothing, armor, sword, and records left the people of Jerusalem at liberty to frame whatever theory they chose respecting his death. There is no room to suppose that Nephi or his brothers were suspected of having had anything to do with it, for it does not appear that any of Laban's servants were present when they requested him to give them the records in exchange for their property, though they were afterwards told to chase and kill him. Had the names of Nephi and his brothers been associated with the death of Laban and the taking of the records, he was so prominent a man and the circumstances of his death so widely known that they could not have visited Jerusalem again, which they did shortly afterwards and induced another family to accompany them in the wilderness with the least safety. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central Archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.